Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari and this is Great Big History Podcast. Here we continue our History 102 series with popular culture during the Great Depression. Superman, where are you now? So in the United States, we're going to talk about two different aspects. We're going to talk about American regionalism, seen here in photography of coal miners, of uh, Edward Hopper's uh, Nighthawks, kind of the urban isolation of the American city during the Depression, and the very famous American Gothic, the kind of country, rural, respectable Americana. And what American regionalism, whether it dealt with the working men in the coal mines or paintings of urban uh, folk or rural art, whether it was novels, whether it was photographs, whether it was paintings, American regionalism, showing off the, the different regions of America, showed people cast off by nature and society. We see this in the Grapes of Wrath with the what's called the Okies, the people who don't have a home anymore. It, it was destroyed in the Dust Bowl. It, became, it went from being a farm to being sand, and so they moved to California. They're cast off by nature. But now they're foreigners, even though they're Americans, they're foreigners in California. And so they're kind of immigrants in their own land. And they don't have anything. They don't own anything. They're not natives. And so they're, they're not, and in a world where there's not a lot of jobs, there's a lot of suspicion of them. So it shows, and we could go back to... All of these, none of these are happy people. Serious, hardworking, tired, beaten up. Nighthawks is the only, the, 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 the coffee bar, the little restaurant, little diner is the only place open in the entire city. Even the, the apartments above the, the um, businesses. There's no lights in them. There's nobody. There's four people, and they're not talking to each other. But there's an attempt to show dignity, and you definitely see this both with the photography of the coal miners and American Gothic. This attempt to show dignity during the Depression. Yes, we're poor, but we still have our dignity. We're still important. We're still Americans. And this is true in all the different places. This is very true of Dorothea Lange's famous picture of the migrant woman, the migrant mother. But despite the dignity of the f that's inherent in the art, of the, of the subject of the art, there's also a melancholy. And you get that if we go back to Nighthawks. There's a, something that's lost. There's a melancholy about that there's just something like you look at Dorothea Lange's photo that's on the screen now, and it's the kids are not looking at the camera. They're hiding their faces. The mom is not looking at the lens. She's looking off beyond the camera. 
So there's a melancholy of something that was lost, something that existed before the depression, that the depression took away. We could go back to the quote we had earlier um, in communism, where we talked about To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, To Kill a Mockingbird is not made during the Depression, but it's about the family during the Depression. And Scout goes, you know, Atticus, are we poor? And she goes, he goes, yes, indeed, we are. And she responds, are we, are we poor like the Cunninghams? And he goes, well, they're, they're country folk, they're farmers, and the crash hit them the hardest. So it's, they're poor, but they can't be blamed for being poor. And they're poor because something happened to them by nature, by society. And so the endemic inequality of the urban versus rural America. This is daring to look. This is the Lang photo. Which is the opposite of Jacob Reese's How the Other Half, the Other Half Lives, which showed urban poverty. We, we talked about this, about um, Gordon Parks and Dorothea Lang. And the photography of the FAS and the government, the New Deal government during the 30s, is there's a lot of rural poverty that's being shown. That's the opposite of Jacob Reese in 1890 who, or in, and in 1900 who's doing photography of urban poverty, of tenement poverty, of immigrant poverty. So you could see how it's changed from 1900 to 1930. Who was poor in America? The face of poverty in America had changed from the urban, the urban immigrant to the rural American. Art was trying to learn something about America. We talked about this when we did liberalism and the government photography. It's trying to know what America is. And the, the regionalism shows it's too big. It's too diverse to know. So it tries to save regional art, music, stories. You see this with Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger would do concerts, and his concerts would be full of songs he did not write, but are, are, all are lost songs, are songs from a valley in West Virginia. It's from a holla in Kentucky. It's this kind of lost accents and lost regionalism. There was an attempt to try to save it. Because what movies and radio were doing was going to, what movies, radio, and later TV was going to do was harmonize, homogenize culture in America. It was going to get rid of American regionalism or make it a lot less local and a lot more regional. The region became the South rather than the Hala in a Kentucky mountain. American regionalism allowed artists to say something about America, its freedom, its underlying dignity. The New Deal funded art, but did not direct artists like it did in Germany of the USSR. Dorothea Lange was given money to go and photograph America. Gordon Parks the same way. And they went and they photographed America. Um, Steinbeck was given money to write novels, not told what kind of novels to write. The plays that are written that come out are there was grants 
to create culture. But in a democratic liberalism, the artists were not told what to write, what to do, what to produce. Jackson Pollock's murals in Philadelphia that we talked about is the same way. He was given money to create these, these murals. He wasn't told what to paint. He may have been given, you know, an outline of rules, right? But within that outline, within that frame, he can do what he wanted. The other thing that comes out during the Depression is American, especially in movies, is American escapism. So if high art, books and paintings are American regionalism, mass art is American escapism. King Kong, Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz. These are things you are going to the movies to not think about the Great Depression. So it's an escape from the Depression and then later World War II. And what you get is themes of prosperity that's gone with the wind. She's poor like three different times in that movie. And she always is making it back. There's themes of honesty. Young Mr. Lincoln. You can trust government. You could trust democracy. But kind of the most famous movies are the gangster movies. Money and action and independence. Cagney goes from being a carefree dancer in the 20s. He's a song and dance man to being the number one mob made man during the Depression. Whether it's White Heat or... You know, I don't know, a dozen movies where he's he, he's famously, James Cagney becomes famously the gangster. And in the gangster movies, so if Gone with the Wind is about prosperity and having the clothes and the giant house and all the things you wish you had, and if young Mr. Lincoln is about government being honest and more pure and less selfish, you know, the, the, the theme that, Every generation of Americans always feels about Congress is that it's it's and it's in Hamilton. It's in the play. It's in the musical Hamilton. The idea that it's all this bickering. Congress is all this bickering. And then they sell out the people and make themselves rich. The gangster movies are about fighting the system. But unlike the movies of the 70s. The system still wins. Unlike the independent movies of the 70s, you fight the system and the system wins. Think about Star Wars, right? Now, that's not an independent movie, but think about Star Wars. The rebellion wins. That doesn't happen in the 20s. The rebellions lose. Cagney loses. Why? Because the movies had to emphasize that the good, that order, was stronger than selfish and violence and chaos. Chaos is fun. A lot more fun. See Batman. But that order is better. The idea of American escapism was to feel better, if only for a few hours. So what about comics? The Great Depression is the first boom time of comics. And it's where we get some of our most famous superheroes. We start with Superman. Who is a super Jew? He is made by Jewish artists. He's made by Jewish creators. And well, while 
Superman is not himself Jewish because he's not an earthling. It is the idea of a super Jew to create to defeat fascism. He is an American ubermensch. But what does the ubermensch fight for? Not racism, not militarism, not the destruction of Judaism, but for truth, justice, and the American way. He's not an American. He's a refugee. And remember, I talked about this in one of the other lectures, where Jews fleeing Germany were not allowed into America. The idea was they would not make America better. They would be a burden on America during the, during the Depression. And those poor people, those poor families, were destroyed in the Holocaust. Superman is a refugee. He's a refugee from a planet that is destroyed. And he comes to America. He is an illegal immigrant in the modern parlance. He is undocumented. He just comes over the border, through, the spa through space, over the border, into Kansas. And that makes him different than the Americans around him, and it makes him better. Like in Hamilton, immigrants, we get the job done. He's also rural, but becomes urban. He's a Kansas hick. He's out from the middle of nowhere in Kansas. He's a Kansas farm boy who goes to the big city to work, to live, to love. Which means he is he's the opposite of the Hallmark Christmas movie where the person starts in the farm, goes to the city, hates the city because it's 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 not moral enough, goes back to the farm, the small town. No, Superman stays in the city. He loves the city. He finds Lois Lane, he finds a good job. He's the bestest boy. And Superman doesn't want power. Even though he could have it. He could be a god, but he doesn't want to. There's a famous statement about Superman that's made in one of the Batman uh, Batman versus Superman movies. It's, it's a remarkable dichotomy. In many ways, Clark, you know, Clark Kent, is the most human of us all. Remember, he's not human. He's from Krypton. Then he shoots fire from the skies, and it's difficult not to think of him as a god. Remember what Zeus does. Zeus and Thor throw lightning from the sky. Superman has the power of Zeus, has the power of Thor. It's difficult not to think of him as a god, and how fortunate we are that it does not occur to him to be one, to be a god. He is, a, he is the democratic response to fascism. Now, Batman is a conservative reaction to Superman. Remember, Superman is a super Jew. He's a Democrat. He believes in the big city. Right? He doesn't really want power. But he's also... Raised as a farm boy, with farm boy values. Batman, on the other hand, is a conservative reaction to Superman. He's a rich philanthropist with the heart of gold who can save the world. Now remember, this is the Depression. Who caused the Depression? Rich people did. 
by blowing up the stock market. 90% of people did not have any money in the stock market. And now they were in the depression. Why? Because these guys were effing around with the money. Just like in 2007, 2008. And they blew up the world. They blew up the economy. So Batman is, no, 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 no. All rich guys aren't, aren't bad. You know, they're not bad. He has a heart of gold. He could save the world. It's the idea that America can save itself. But cities are dangerous. They're violent. And you need violence to keep the city violence in check. Cities are also corrupt. City government is ineffectual. Only a man with will can save it. Will and money can save Gotham. Like, look at the, look at the picture that we have from the Dark Knight. Welcome to a world without rules. Does that sound like Superman? No. Superman has rules, truth, justice, the American way. Those are rules. Batman doesn't. Batman is welcome to a world without rules. Where the bat is burning in a building. That's not good. People live in that building. There's property in that building. Superman would not light his, you make a giant super S burning on a building. Batman has fascist tendencies. He is beyond the law. In Miller's version, in Frank Miller's version, it is, I alone can fix this. Government can't do it. The cops can't do it. I will do it. He is a terrorist of terrorists. We see this with another fascist comic book hero, which is the Punisher, the Vigilante. But that's later. That's post-Vietnam. But there was the quote from Vice President Dick Cheney about dealing with terrorists in post-9-11, and it's, we have to work through the dark side, meaning we have to assassinate people, we have to torture people, we have to kidnap people in order to save America. Well, that's Batman. Now, Batman doesn't kill people, so he doesn't go that far, but he is a terrorist to the terrorists. He hunts bad guys. So he is the idea, and this is an important one, an important one that gets lost in the idea that democracies are weak and they're soft and they don't get a lot done, is that democracies can be ruthless rather than soft. Batman is, don't F with us. And there's plenty of historical evidence of democracies being ruthless. Athens destroys Milos, commits a genocide. Rome destroys Carthage and enslaves 80,000 people in a day and obliterates Carthage. Sherman's March, which is famous even today in the South for its destruction of Southern culture. Well, it went from Atlanta to Savannah, then up the coast into South Carolina where they, where they burned down even more. Freeing slaves, burning slave plantations, taking the war to the people who had caused the Civil War. They burned down Charleston. World War II bombings that we'll talk about in a future lecture of Berlin, of Tokyo, of Dresden. And finally, nukes that will obliterate everything. Democracies made the nuclear weapon. Democracy made the atomic bomb. Not fascism. 
democracies burned everything in Japan that was worth burning. Democracy, British and American, burned Dresden to the ground, even though it wasn't a military target, just to say we could. And that's where we'll get the book Slaughterhouse-Five. So Batman, Superman is democracy has power, but it's restrained. Batman is you don't want to know what democracy can do when it unleashes its violence. Fascism talks a good game, but you know who defeated fascism? Liberal democracy and communism. So what about popular culture in the Soviet Union? So, if communism is also going to win the Second World War, let's talk about how does it represent itself. You have realism and symbolic representation of values, which seems weird, right? You, it, you should go, uh-huh, how do you put the two together? But look at, the, look at the graphic design poster we have. We have realism. It looks like a working man. It looks like the flag. It looks like the wheat. This is a working man. It's a farmer. They have all the accoutrements. But what they do is represent. And what are they representing? The unity of the urban worker, the factory worker, and the rural farming worker. So it's using realism. Things look like things. They don't... I shouldn't say. They, they look like things. They're not abstract. But they also represent values. So look at the working man's forearms. How... how muscular they are they're staring off into the future right he's holding the red flag of the communist revolution so these are guys who believe in communism so soviet realism is going to believe in family emancipation remember communism is supposed to be freeing russian society freeing soviet society from the czar from the oppression of the czar. It symbolizes strength and collective unity. It also symbolizes female inclusion and equality. Women, working women, strong women, are important parts of Soviet art in the Depression. You know, here, here are Soviet women uh, with, the, with the grain, shoveling the grain. On a collective farm. A Soviet female worker in a factory. The idea of it is people are happy. Stalin is great. Communism equals freedom. This is where George Orwell gets his, his doublespeak, right? Where violence is peace. War is peace. Where the thing, the government says a word, but the word is the opposite, means the opposite. Communism equals freedom. Now, if you're in the liberal Western world, the democratic world, you're looking at Stalinism if you saw what Stalinism really was, and you say that's the opposite of freedom. That's government oppression. But the art is telling you communism is freedom. You get lots of lots of, there's lots of money. Stalin is going to spend, Lenin first, but then Stalin spends lots of money on art. But there's a lot of censorship. It's got to appeal to Stalin. And Stalin was ultimately on art, fairly conservative. So you get lots of graphic design, but there's little freedom for great art for artists to be great. All the great artists of the 
of the night of the late czarist period all leave. They go to Switzerland. They go to Sweden. They go to London. They leave. You get a lot of art. Lot of Soviet art. Lot of posters. Lots of propaganda. Lots of st- um, music. Choral music, especially, is famous. But l- not much of it makes a dent in the world of art. You see this today in, in Chinese art, in communist China. Like, you get Weiwei, who is the most famous world artist. And he's most famous for being a pain in the ass to the CCP, for being a reactionary. And while communist China and Chinese artists are creating lots of art, there's very few pieces that are making any dent in the world today. Not because the people aren't talented, not because they're not good, but because the argument of this class, the argument of this, this section of the class is they're not given the freedom to really push the boundaries that are necessary. That in the end, they're still stuck with the Stalinist idea of having to appeal to the party. There are limits on their creativity. So you get lots of graphic design, but little great art. Okay, what about popular culture in Nazi Germany in the 1930s? Overwhelmingly, it's an anti-degeneracy. Remember, fascism is ultra-conservative. So it's obsessed with morality and behavior. Homosexuals, private deviants. What are people doing behind closed doors? And why is it bad? So the art reflects this. The art reflects the traditional, the folk, the people, real Germans. Not those fake city slicker people. Definitely not Jews. But rural country folk. And all of this is versus the abstract, the modern, the sexual, the Jewish, the American. Here is, um, if you're looking at the video on the lower left, is a painting of a uh, woman off to do work in the countryside. And they're happy and they're white and they're Aryan, and things are great. Remember, it's still the Depression, but things are great. But that painting, those women look like they could be in the 1850s. It's not modern dress. It's not modern hair, headscarves. It's not modern instruments for music. It's all traditional. Compare it to the Nazi seized art that's on the right. The Nazis seized all of this modern art and look at it as abstract and cubist and sexual. There's nude people. There's things, there's designs that don't look quite right. They don't look like anything. That's what they were rejecting. The abstract, the modern, the sexual, the Jewish, the American. So it uses traditions and traditional cues, social cues, things that Germans would all kind of understand. So Wagner, the heroic traditions of action. You know, Wagner's ring operas are all based on German folk tales, so people would have understood them. So the Nazis take that on. 
ideas of masculinity, the proper role of fathers, of men. This is actually anti-intellectual. Intellectualism became Jewish. Oh, these, these nerdy guys in the universities, in the cities, eh, they're vaguely gay, they're vaguely Jewish. You know, real men. Look at our poster, right? Look how big the chests are of the men, how broad their shoulders are. These are not men who spend all their... They don't have glasses on. They don't spend all their time reading. But look at the, our middle poster and look at those, the Jewish folk with their little glasses and their, and their like... Look at their representations while the big, strong Aryan man stands above them. You know, masculinity was the proper traditional roles of father, kind of like in the 50s with a TV show called Father Knows Best. Nazis would have loved to have a TV show titled that because that's what they would believe. The father runs the family. The father works, the mother stays home, the father tells the kids what to do and raises them as good, proper Nazi German youth. Nietzsche who is new, a new philosopher. He's, in the, he's, he's pre-World War I, but he emphasizes action. So he becomes the philosopher of the Nazis. He's not a Nazi, but the, he's the philosopher that the Nazis like because he emphasized action. Do something. Break things, even if it's wrong. Don't be held back by the rules of society. The rules of society are there to stop you from being great. Like Nike, right? Just do it. That's Nietzsche. And government is going to direct art through money. Remember, we talked about fascism. It spends a lot of money, and it tells people what it wants for that money. It doesn't own it like communism does. You know, Stalin hired the artists to produce art Stalin liked. In Nazi Germany, they don't hire the artists. Well, they... They don't, the artists are not employed by the Nazi party. But the Nazi party will give them so much money, will make so much money available that artists will want to take that money because why would you turn it down? It's good money, but you're going to have to play by the Nazi rules and so it has to be pro-Nazi, anti-Jewish, anti-communist. Government wanted it, it wanted a lot of it, and it was willing to pay for it, and artists in the Depression needed money. And so, okay, you want something that emphasizes a blonde, strong, strapping young man? As a Nazi? Sure. The, the German student is a Nazi student. He's respectable, he's got white teeth, he's got coiffed hair, he's, got, he's trim, he's got broad shoulders and a big chest. That's the idea. There's an emphasis on togetherness, unity, power, success. Right? We saw this in The Lion King with all of the hyenas marching together. It's the triumph of the will. The triumph of the will has these massive, massive scenes of all the people working together, of being together, of moving together. It's the idea that the Nazis, not Weimar, not the democracies, Democracies can't get, get out of their own way, but the Nazis can organize mass people and massive power. And triumph of the will is going to have a huge effect 
on the representation of power. Look at our top image on the right. You have Triumph of the Will, 1935, on the left. And next to it is Star Wars, the end of A New Hope. The medal scene between where Luke, Chewie, and Han are going to receive medals. Now remember, on the left, in Triumph of the Will, it is the victory of the Nazis, the bad guys. On the right, it's the victory of the Republic, the good guys. And yet, they are, they chose to film Star Wars, they chose to use this imagery from Triumph of the Will. So what does that tell you what George Lucas thinks of the Republic? A dude with a magic sword and a bunch of guys blowing stuff up? You know, as the Who would write, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. That George Lucas is telling you, maybe the Republic is not all it's cracked up to be. It is still a military organization. You get book burnings, and this is the most famous kind of thing that comes out. Americans, old students learn about this in elementary school. You get the book burnings of anti-Nazi books. That's mostly for show, because that's not going to accomplish anything, right? By this point of industrialization, you can't burn all the books. You can't burn all of Marx. It just doesn't work that way. So it's so what is the point of it? It is to show that you want to destroy this culture you don't like, that there's only one truth, the Nazi truth, and you are willing to destroy it in fire so that it doesn't exist anymore, even though it's hopeless, it's fruitless. You know it still exists. In architecture, it's Roman imperial. It's neoclassical. In fact, they captured, the Americans captured a model of what Berlin would become, and Berlin would become a new Rome. Berlin would become the, the third Rome. That's what the Nazis wanted to do. They didn't want, as much as they talk about German, 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 interestingly, in their architecture, they went back to the Romans. In sculpture, they went back to the Romans because the Romans were great. Now, the Romans had never conquered Germany, so it's an interesting thing to want to model a German capital which had resisted Roman conquest and remake it as a Roman city. Theater, arts, music were all traditionally, quote, German artworks. Goethe, Mozart, Bach. Bach makes a big comeback. Wagner. We're going to see references to Mozart and Bach later in uh, our World War II uh, section. It is anti-jazz, anti-swing, anti-Jewish slash American. So everything created and censored and there's a lot of censorship, was to promote the Nazi worldview, the Nazi party, Nazi German racial hierarchy, anti-communism, pro-male, anti-democratic, and anti-democratic independence. The idea that democracies are so independent, there's all this infighting, they can't get anything done. 
and that the Nazis can do things. They can do big things. Okay, that's where I will end. Thank you, and I'm sorry.